0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an autocrat and a kleptocrat joining forces with a theocrat and explore the role of white Christian nationalism as a vital component of the coalition to re-elect Trump, now bolstered by Trump's Christian soldier, MAGA Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House. Joining us is Clyde Wilcox, a professor of American government at Georgetown University and a scholar at its Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace and World Affairs, who teaches at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Qatar. Previously a statistician at the Federal Election Commission, he has trained diplomats in the U.S. and abroad, spoken to international visitors in State Department programs from more than 185 countries, and has consulted with presidential campaigns, trade associations and citizens groups. He's the author of numerous books on comparative and American politics, including God's Warriors, The Christian Right in 20th Century America, Between Two Absolutes, Public Opinion and the Politics of Abortion, The Politics of Gay Rights, and Onward Christian Soldiers. Then, with Israel about to invade Gaza and the Islamic Republic of Iran threatening to unleash its proxies, we will look into whether Iran's aging supreme leader will avoid a wider war or stoke the apocalyptic fires the theocratic regime routinely inflames. Joining us is Abbas Malani, Director of Iranian Studies and Professor of the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Until 1986, he taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Centre for International Relations. His books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. Then finally, we get an inside look at the President and Joe Biden's first two years in office, and speak with Franklin Foyer a staff reporter at The Atlantic and the author of World Without Mind, Why Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple Threaten Our Future and How Soccer Explains the World. We'll discuss his latest book, a New York Times bestseller, The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings and armed and angry followers are paralyzing our legislative branch and threatening to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judicial branch. We are in a fight between crazy America and normal America, which we have to win please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before fascism, Trump's democracy, and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Clyde Wilcox, who's a professor of government at Georgetown University and a scholar at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs, and he also teaches at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Qatar. Previously, he was a statistician at the Federal Election Commission, and he's trained diplomats in the U.S. and abroad and spoken to international visitors in State Department programs from more than 185 countries and has consulted with presidential campaigns, trade associations and citizens groups. He's the author of numerous books on comparative and American politics, including God's Warriors, The Christian Right in 20th Century America, Between Two Absolutes, Public Opinion and the Politics of Abortion, the Politics of Gay Rights and Onward Christian Soldiers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Clyde Wilcox.
1: Thank Thank you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, and it seems that uh, in uh, Mike Johnson, uh, the new Speaker of the House, who is described by his colleagues as MAGA Mike Johnson, is a Christian nationalist and has been for some time. And in, interesting enough, it looks as though behind the scenes, we know that he was he's very close to Trump and championed Trump's Stop the Steal big lie and was very active and important in that trying to overturn the electoral college count and he embraced all kinds of crazy theories as the Kraken uh, did, including Hugo Chavez's interference with voting machines. So, but my understanding is that he actually played a a role behind the scenes in scuttling Tom Emmer, who was the previous nominee before he got it. And he helped spread the word that remind everybody on the Christian right amongst the Congress that Tom Emmer had voted for gay marriage, and that scuttled Tom Emmer, and now he's the Speaker. So he may be a pious Christian, but he's also a political operator, isn't he?
2: Yes, he's an ambitious guy. So I think the best comparison to him would be to Mike Pence, um, who is a sincere, very conservative anti-abortion, anti-gay and lesbian rights uh, conservative. But the difference is that Pence, you know, accepted the outcome of the election, accepted his constitutional duty, and the new Speaker of the House was willing to overturn the election to keep Trump in office.
0: So how much do you think he is literally Trump's guy? One of the things that Trump wrote on True Social in telling his followers in the in the House not to vote for Tom Emmer was that Tom Emmer hadn't essentially kissed his behind. And on the other hand, he praised uh, Mike Johnson as a MAGA faithful. So can you say that this guy is Trump's guy? And again, I wanted to get into a conversation with you about Trump's ties to religious nationalism and Christian nationalism.
2: Right. So he certainly supported Trump uh, as president and supported, as you say, the big lie. Um, I think Trump, his support for Trump is instrumental. He has certain policies he wants to accomplish. Trump was supportive of those policies or at least not objecting to them. Um, I think if someone else came along that would be, you know, a better fit to his religious values, that he would he would be willing to abandon Trump. So I don't think it's a deep personal loyalty, but he uh, certainly is a very strong supporter of Trump. If he's Speaker of the House, when we get around to certifying the results of the next election, that might be complicated.
0: So let's talk about Trump's role, and particularly Trump's role in terms of capturing the Christian nationalist vote, and in fact, more than that, his campaign now is essentially campaigning on this roadshow led by General Flynn, the reawakened American tour, where many of Trump's top aides are featured speakers. Um, Roger Stone, along with, of course, General Flynn, Lara Trump, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and his partner, Kimberly Guilfoyle. They spoke at this uh, recent rally in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, So did Trump's lawyer, Alina Hubba, and his former Defense Department staffer, Cash Patel. And at the uh, Las Vegas Christian Nationalist rally, you had Lara Trump saying, we know the one in charge above all, and I can tell you that I believe that he has his hand on Donald Trump, that no weapon formed against him shall prosper. God is a part of this race. I'm telling you guys this. I feel it deep down inside. And then Roger Stone, who's hardly a a paragon of virtue, said, just as Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father, saved me, I am absolutely convinced that he will deliver Donald Trump and save this nation in our greatest moment of peril. So what's going on here with these kind of people who don't seem to have the kind of religious credentials that Mike Johnson has being embraced by the Christian nationalists.
2: So I think that most of those speakers you listed are not really sincere in the things they're saying any more than Donald Trump is a sincere, um, you know, deeply religious man. Um, you know, if you think of the seven deadly sins, it's hard to think of any of them that Donald Trump is not a poster boy for, right? But um, but there is, a, uh, they do use the language well. Um, that, that particular language was appealing to Pentecostals, uh, especially. Um, but I think the very end of what you quoted to me was, was kind of important. So why would these deeply conservative Christians embrace a man who is paying off a prostitute while he's president and, you know just uh, you know full of greed and and so forth and I think over a period of time Republicans have stoked their base into thinking that America is at a crisis point and that only by electing deeply conservative people who would appoint conservative judges on the court can the nation be saved and so theologically conservative Christians can look to examples in the Old Testament of times when God would work with a non-Jewish, you know, non-believing leader for the good of Israel. And so, you know, they're willing to say that God God is raising up a warrior in a time when we need a warrior, um, even though he is himself not a deeply religious man.
0: But they're also using, aren't they, Clyde, the martyrdom of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion in terms of Trump's legal troubles. The more that he's indicted, and with 91 charges against him, the more they double down in their support because they feel that he's being persecuted just as Jesus Christ was.
2: Yeah, so that language doesn't appeal to all evangelical Christians, I must say, I know some lifelong evangelical Republicans who are deeply troubled by this. You know, the idea that Donald Trump is being, you know, uh, indicted is not the same as Jesus taking on the sins of the world and being crucified or whatever. Actually, my favorite meme that has been bandied around by these people so it shows Jesus walking on water, and Donald Trump is walking on water in front of him.
0: So, sort of like he did with the Queen of England, right? So, um. <laughs> Well, what about uh, going back to the new speaker, uh, Maga Mark Johnson? What is his obsession about homosexuality? Because he wrote in support of a Louisiana amendment banning same-sex marriage, saying that it could lead to people marrying their pets. And then in 2004 column, He predicted that uh, same-sex marriage could doom America, just to quote his column. If you were shocked by the moral lapses at the Super Bowl, you ain't seen nothing yet. Experts project that homosexual marriage is the dark harbinger of chaos and sexual anarchy that could doom even the strongest republic. Now, he's third in line in terms of being in charge of the strongest republic.
2: Right. So, you know, opposition to same-sex marriage is is high among the the very strongest fundamentalist uh, wing of the evangelical Protestants, but honestly, among people under 40, um, evangelical Protestants who attend church weekly and believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, a majority of them support same-sex marriage. So um, this particular position is not even a majority position among young evangelical Christians, much less among the nation as a whole. So um, to the extent that he tries to push that agenda, that's just going to hurt Republican candidates. He's also pushing for a nationwide ban on abortion, not content to leave the matter to the states, which was the original argument, but a nationwide ban. And that, of course, will also be not popular, and would lead to a
0: backlash. Well, I find it really troubling, though, that his domestic agenda is so cruel. He's really, you know, in the guise of a deficit hawk, wanting to slash Social Security, Medicare, and particularly Medicaid, which helps the poor. And of course, I don't know whether he's ever read the Gospel of St. Matthew, but, you know, Jesus, the Prophet Jesus ministered to the poor, and this guy wants to impoverish millions and millions of Americans and take away what little social safety net we have.
2: Well, yeah, I personally agree uh, entirely. That the The gospels portray Jesus who um, is not a friend of the rich, um, who in fact, you know, ministers to the poor, to the sick, um, and encourages broad charity. Um, For some in the evangelical community, they would say, well, personal charity is what Christianity demands, not organized national charity. But, um, yeah, we've gotten ourselves into a position where we've cut taxes and cut taxes and cut taxes, that if you actually wanted to come anywhere close to balancing the budget, you know, you pretty much have to really, really hurt old people and poor people especially if you're not going to uh, put the defense budget on, uh, you know, as part of the negotiation. So, yeah, and and once again, the the nation is not on board, especially on Social Security and Medicare, but also Medicaid, Um, you know, poor children get health care, right? Pregnant pregnant women who the pro-life community wants to bring their uh, fetuses to birth, um, depend on, on Medicaid for their health care.
0: So Trump got 81% of the white evangelical vote in 2016. What was the percentage in uh, 2020?
2: Um, I don't know. I think it was about the same, honestly. Um, so what uh, what's happened in America is that the, as the parties have separated and people have begun to develop, Pretty polarized attitudes towards other parties. Um, then, if you don't like Trump, if you don't think he's a man of God, really, and he's not the kind of man who should be president, but you think the Democrat, you believe some of the QAnon and on things about Democrats, and you know, or whatever, or just think they're plain evil, um, then that was the only choice. Evangelicals really had. Um, there was a block of evangelicals that were very enthusiastic for him. There was a block that was reluctant. And then, of course, there was like one out of five white evangelicals who did not vote for him.
0: So does that mean as moderate Republicans become less excited about Trump, then the importance of the far right and the Christian nationalists as as a constituency that Trump has to win over becomes more acute?
2: Well, he certainly needs high turnout from this group. Um, I think, you know, just based on his... Supreme Court nominees, you probably would get that, right? Um, But the party finds itself in a a really awkward situation in that this core group is essential to win an election. And, of course, Republicans have not won the popular vote only once in in quite a long time. Um, But the, the agenda that Christian nationalists want is really poison to moderate voters and centrist voters and and even uh, moderate Republicans. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a dilemma for them. But but Trump will certainly play to this. This is his most enthusiastic group at the moment. Um, So and and then it certainly looks like he's going to be the nominee. He's got a you know, gargantuan lead in the polls, although, of course, no one's voted yet.
0: Well, Clyde Wilcox, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it.
2: Enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Clyde Wilcox, who's a professor of American government at Georgetown University and a scholar at its Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs and at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. And he teaches at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Qatar. He was previously a statistician at the Federal Election Commission where he trained diplomats in the U.S. and abroad and has spoken to international visitors in State Department programs from more than 185 countries and has consulted with presidential campaigns, trade associations, and citizens groups. He's the author of numerous books on comparative and American politics, including God's Warriors, The Christian Right in 20th Century America, Between Two Absolutes, Public Opinion and Politics of Abortion, The Politics of Gay Rights, and Onward, Christian Soldiers. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into whether Iran's aging supreme leader will avoid a wider war or stoke the apocalyptic fires the theocratic regime routinely inflames. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and This is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Abbas Malani, who's Director of Iranian Studies and Professor at the Center for Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Until 1986, he taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. And his books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. Welcome to Background Briefing, Abbas Malani.
3: Thank you for having
0: me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, with Israel poised for a land invasion, and they've already had a kind of an incursion, a raid into northern Gaza. Apparently, they used bunker-busting munitions, and now Hamas is claiming they uh, the Israelis killed 50 of the hostages. So we don't know whether to take that as being credible. But on the other hand, it's been pretty clear, both from Iran's foreign minister and, and from the supreme leader, that they feel that if Israel engages in a land invasion of Gaza, they will have crossed a red line. So do you think if this happens, as it apparently will happen in any day now, will Iran pull the trigger on its proxy, Hezbollah?
3: They might pull part of the trigger. Uh, I don't think uh, Hezbollah once an all-out war. I don't think Iran is in a position to engage in an all-out war. I think they're trying to use this... Uh, for their own PR purposes, and for the purpose of uh, rendering the two-state solution uh, impossible, which has been their strategy from the moment that uh, this uh, became a viable possibility. Um, I know the reality in uh, Israel and uh, Palestine authority has every day diminished that possibility from being realized, but Iran has been one of the most active forceful enemies of this two-state solution. Iran's foreign minister today uh, in the UN meeting uh, again uh, stated that the two-state solution is not a a good idea and that there should be one state uh, from river to the sea and it should be a Palestinian state. So, uh, in that sense, they have been the mastermind of all of this. unfortunate situation, but I don't think they're in a position to engage in a full war, which they know would also involve the United States and some of the Europeans, I think.
0: But how much does Iran control the proxies? I mean, for example, Hamas, it seems like the al Qassam Brigade, who conducted the brutal and hideous attack on the Israeli civilians, murdering children, etc., it seems to be they're not entirely in sync with the diplomatic or the official group that represent Hamas, both in Qatar. In fact, a delegation is, uh, has arrived in Moscow today. So is there a split within the proxies, and who really is in charge, particularly uh, in terms of Hamas?
3: You know, I, I think uh, both in terms of Hamas, uh, the al Qassam Brigade, and uh, even the Hezbollah. Although Iran provides uh, the bulk of support for them, uh, uh, training for Hezbollah almost entirely, the the budget, uh, much of uh, the military training, according to Hamas officials and Iranian officials, uh, is provided by Iran. But I think they also have some sense of uh, uh, relative independence. Uh, There is a letter uh, that I uh, recently read Mr. Khamenei has written to uh, the Hamas leadership and says that it is our religious duty to support you in your fight to eliminate the state of Israel. How you do it and when you do it, it is your choice. In other words, in that letter, we can see the level of uh, relative independence that he thinks they should give proxies like uh, Hamas.
0: Well, in uh, Hamas's original charter in 1988, they state that, quote, there is no solution for the Palestinian problem except by jihad. And they, want, they go on to declare that, quote, the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight Jews and kill them. How much does the Supreme Leader endorse that?
3: Well, I, I know that uh, that uh, document has been revised, but I think the essence of this uh, language Uh, is very much part of Mr. Khamenei's views. He just gave uh, two days ago a talk where he says, uh, uh, while I strongly uh, attack, he says, um, the possibility of incursion into uh, Gaza, while I strongly, he says, attack the uh, brutal suppression of citizens there, but have no fear. This is a small setback. Uh, This is the beginning of the end for uh, Israel. And it's the beginning of a new beginning for uh, Islamic State in all of Palestine, they uh, have no mistake, make no mistake, they don't want a Palestinian state, they want Islamic Palestinian state, which according to Khamenei, again, clearly, unmistakably, is the first step, or one of the first steps towards the realization of the ultimate goal of Islam becoming the the world religion. In both of these, uh, there is this apocalyptic notion uh, that a historic turn has been made. Mr. Khamenei has ad nauseum, in the last few years, uh, in writings and in his speeches, uh, in his sermons, talked about how a historic turn has been made, the historic turn for the rise of Islam, Islam has been in decline, he says in for many centuries. This is the moment that the Judeo-Christian world, Western capitalism, uh, all of the hegemonic forces in his language that have hitherto dominated the world, they're under decline. Uh, The East is under rise, he says, and Islam is under rise. Now, the fact that the countries in the East that he aligns himself with are none of them, abrahamic religions uh, except if you think putin is an orthodox christian Uh, many people would think that he's uh, more uh, kind of a mafia boss but uh, china uh, india uh, and russia none of them uh, would i think support an islamic state china has a million and a half people in concentration camps Uh, so the irony of aligning with china and russia who's uh, record in Chechnya is well known that massive bombardment of Chechnya is well known uh, and India which is increasingly becoming a Hindu state a, hin- a lesser democracy than a Hindu ideological state to think that you're going to align with them and realize the Islamic uh, uh, end of the world is ironic if not uh, foolish but that's what their vision is and it's based in that vision that they do almost everything that uh, they seem to do. And it's almost always engaging in shenanigans that destabilizes the Middle East and refuses to recognize that, well, I believe that while Palestinians have a right to a state, Israel also, uh, Israelis also have a right to live peacefully in that region. We need two states to recognize uh, each other and the right of each other to exist. many doesn't believe in that. Well, neither does Netanyahu, though. Well, unfortunately, absolutely right. Unfortunately, uh, the two-state solution was undermined by, uh, uh, on the one hand, forces like the Islamic Republic and Hamas, and on the other hand, by people like Mr. Netanyahu, the the people who killed uh, Rabin, uh, who was the... A pioneer in trying to find a state solution to a state solution. So uh, there is responsibility, absolutely, uh, on the, the Israeli right for not recognizing the right of Palestinians to exist, for not recognizing that people who live in Gaza are, in my view, hostages to Hamas. Uh, Hamas is not a democratically elected government. Uh, we have no idea how many people would favor uh, Hamas as their Uh, leader. Uh, But they are hostages, and to punish them for the mischiefs, for the terrorism of the ruler, I think, is a misguided policy, for sure.
0: So when you talk about the supreme leader's vision, is it a Shia vision? I mean, one of the odd things about Hamas is that it's Sunni, and yet it has clearly close ties to this kind of radical Shiism. Well, I think,
3: uh, you're pointing to Uh, a very important point that is almost always uh, either ignored or remains unknown to many people who comment on the uh, Muslim Middle East. Mr. Khamenei is a radical Shiite, but he has translated four of the books of Sayyid al-Qutb. Qutb is the ideologue of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt many people have called him the father of terrorism he be- he is very much of the opinion that jihad is the very definition of being a muslim i'm almost verbatim quoting him so Khamenei, though a shiite has translated four of the books three and a half actually but uh, because half of the, the fourth one he allowed his brother to finish uh, which are not uh, Shia text, but they join in one very important point, that um, Islam means jihad, or, um, the, the, that it is the definition of a Muslim. Uh, Sayyid al in Khamenei, translation, says, it is not enough to say you're a Muslim. If you say you're a Muslim, if you say you believe in the Quran, the absolute concomitant element of that. Is to engage in jihad. Without jihad, you are not a Muslim. And for that jihad, you need to accept preeminence of the Islamic Ummah. Uh, those who rightly defend, uh, I think, uh, Palestinian nationalism, because I, I don't think without a Palestinian state there would be peace in that region. I think must remember that uh, Hamas is not in favor of a Palestinian state because pa- nationalism is anathema to them nationalism they literally say say literally says hominy has often said that the idea of nationalism is a judeo-christian uh, trick to undermine the power of islam we have to recognize that larger unity so while uh, sectarian differences exist while iran and saudi arabia iran and some of the other sunni states go at one another uh, for political purposes in the larger political theoretical text and context of engaging in jihad for realization of the Islamic State. They share uh, this ideology and proven by the fact that Mr. Khamenei, when he was a a little known cleric, translated a lot of these, and it's very difficult to find his translations now. It took me a great deal of effort to find his translations, because the regime, for exactly tactical reasons that you point to, doesn't want it known that uh, they were uh, ideological brethren.
0: But this focuses surely on Qatar, doesn't it? That that they've been funding Hamas, they support the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, they get a pretty free ride, don't they? I mean... Is there any chance that uh, because of this war that there will be more focus on Qatar's foreign policy? And maybe, I mean, I know the U.S. has a big base there, so they probably don't want to rock the boat. But on the other hand, you know, Qatar's tried to reach out to the world and portray itself as a modern state with its own airline and hosting the World Cup and Al Jazeera, etc. So do you think that Qatar's in for some more inquiry
3: and focus? Well, clearly, Qatar, uh, I think, has contributed more money to uh, Hamas in terms of sheer volume than Iran has. But uh, I'm almost sure there's a lot of evidence that has emerged in the last few weeks that they did this with the uh, central consent of uh, Netanyahu. Uh, because Netanyahu believed, it now turns out erroneously, that if you give this money to Hamas, they might become preoccupied with the question of economic development. And uh, you saw the within the Palestinians. Uh, Apparently he is on record saying that uh, if you keep this kind of this Hamas in power, we can control them, we can contain them. But it also makes uh, uh, the possibility of a unified Palestinian authority uh, impossible. So I think there was a miscalculation. Uh, by Israel Uh, I would be surprised if the United States doesn't know, didn't know that all this money was going there Uh, but I think Western powers keep making the same mistakes over and over again Uh, in Iran under the Shah the Shah allowed the Islamists to organize, thinking that the main threat to this regime during the, remember it's a cold warrior, comes from the left comes from nationalists. comes from Mossadegh. So these uh, Islamists were free to organize, were free to create schools, free to collect funds. Uh, And then when the regime went into crisis, that organization coalesced around Khomeini and seized power. Even after that, the US in Afghanistan still thought that they could help supply Taliban and use Taliban against the Soviet Union, which they did. But out of Taliban came the monster that Taliban became. Uh, In Lebanon, uh, we know that initially Israel looked favorably to the rise of Shiite power in Lebanon because it taught then that its main enemy is PLO. Uh,
0: Use the green to fight the red and (laughs) you end up with blowback. Uh, I I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your insight, Abbas Malani.
3: It's always a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Abbas Malani, who's Director of Iranian Studies and Professor at the Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Until 1986, he taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science. He is also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. His books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx and The Shah. We're going to take a brief station break and back with a look inside at the President and at Joe Biden's first two years in office.
1: The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has is floating, but you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, I, you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Franklin Foyer, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of World Without Mind, Why Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple Threaten Our Future, and How Soccer Explains the World. His latest book, a New York Times bestseller, is The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Welcome to Background Briefing, Franklin Foyer.
4: A pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And I have a feeling that historians will talk about the period when Biden was inaugurated on January the 20th of 2021 as one of the most critical periods in American history. And as much as Trump was able to hoist this canard about him winning the election and and Biden being illegitimate and the stop the steal a lie that has metastasized now into a core Republican belief. And now you have MAGA, Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, uh, one of the leading architects of legal arguments along <laughs> on the basis of the Kraken and Hugo Chavez being behind the hacking the um, vote counting machines, etc. So do you think that at that point, which you describe in your book, as instead of a Democratic extravaganza, Biden's inauguration was surrounded by wire fences and jersey barriers, guarded by armored vehicles and 26,000 members of the National Guard who descended on Washington for the event determined to prevent a reprise of the violence of the 6th of January. Was that a moment where Biden could have really emphasized that he won and the other guy lost and the other guy should shut up and go back and eat? Big Macs and play golf.
4: I mean, that was in, in effect what happened. I mean, Trump um, left the White House on his own volition, which is something that was not a foregone conclusion. And um, Biden used his inauguration as um, this grim celebration of the resilience of democracy. Um, I think it was his hope at that moment that um that if he didn't mention Trump by name too often, then perhaps Trump would disappear, which of course hasn't proven to be the case. But um, I'm not sure there was much that Biden could have done differently on that day and in the initial period of his administration. One of the th- things that we forget about that early part of the Biden presidency was that uh, the pandemic was raging. Uh, Trump had helped uh somewhat birthed the vaccine through Operation Warp Speed. But uh, due to the incompetence of the Trump administration, um, there um, there was no plan for getting vaccines in arms. And vaccine production itself was not ramped up to the point where it needed to be. And one of Biden's big challenges was trying to get the unvaccinated to accept the vaccine. And so I think that that colored a lot of the way that he talked about Trump in that early period of time and his his reluctance to um, overly or further polarize the nation because he was worried that further polarization, especially around COVID, would result in the deaths that stem from people failing to vaccinate.
0: But, Franklin, it was also a time, though, when Mitch McConnell took to the Senate floor and laid out a case against Trump held him c- accountable and basically gave the democrats a roadmap to prosecute him and so did kevin mccarthy also went after trump and laid the whole january 6th disaster at his feet so i'm just wondering whether there was a, there could have been a way to work with those two guys and and form some kind of front to stop this because <laughs> stop the steal has turned into, as I mentioned, a bedrock belief. And now you've got this theocrat in charge of the House uh, who's one you of You know, mayor- I,
4: I, I I have no faith in um, either Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell. I mean, I think both of them uh, would have moments where they would periodically express outrage over Trump and a desire to move on from him, but then um, never were able to go the full distance. If If McConnell had wanted to... Um, impeach Donald Trump, uh, he could have done that, but he didn't want to. Uh, McCarthy, we know, went to Mar-a-Lago um, and helped resuscitate Donald Trump after January 6. So um, I think the long lesson of the last couple of years is that there is no force within the Republican Party, perhaps save Mitt Romney, that has the courage to actually take on Trumpism, and I don't think there was anything that Democrats could have done differently that would have changed that.
0: So turning to your book, Biden was, of course, he said when he became president, he declared I will always be a Senate man. And he had a reputation as a, as somebody that worked across the aisle and was a centrist. So. Now, of course, the mantra on the Republican from the GOP now is radical left-wing socialist uh, Democrats, which is an odd projection, given how the radical right has captured the Republican Party. So did he, I mean, did Biden move to the left or did the Republicans move to the right?
4: Um, I think it's... Uh, in some ways, Biden moved to the left in that um, his big initial proposal was for $3.5 trillion in social spending. It's not even that he moved to the left. It was, I think, that Biden was more ambitious than people had initially suspected that he would be, that Biden is somebody who Um, didn't want to be regarded as a placeholder president. And so when he set out his initial domestic agenda, it was it was expansive, especially as expansive considering that there was a one vote majority in the Senate. But I don't think that you could really um, uh, classify Biden that neatly by saying that he moved to the left. I think that uh, a lot of his appointments were Um, people who uh, Elizabeth Warren had suggested, especially in the realm of economics. And so that's resulted in um, an economic policy that's much more aggressive on antitrust than I think people uh, would have ever suspected. I think he's proven to be um, a much bigger backer of unions um, than anybody really probably suspected. But then there are lots of other areas where um, he's tacked to the center. And one of the uh, surprise stories of the first two years of the Biden presidency was that he passed this raft of bipartisan legislation at a time when, by most measures, the Senate and uh, the Congress were 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 broken. And so that that um, was a vindication of his theory of the case that um, he could make institutions work.
0: So there's not analogy then with Woodrow Wilson, who uh, had to move to the left because of William Jennings Bryan. It's not as if Biden moved to the left because of Bernie Sanders?
4: No, there, uh, Bernie Sanders definitely exerted uh, a lot of influence on the trajectory, uh, and Elizabeth Warren, uh, on the trajectory of the Biden presidency. Um, I think Biden, I, my title of my book is The Last Politician Biden is a politician. He's somebody who does respond, uh, at least in moments, to pressure from his allies. And um, I think after the primary campaign, he brought Warren and Sanders in and had them help construct what would be his general election agenda. And um, Sanders made a decision at the very beginning of the presidency that he would be willing to um, work with uh, Biden from the inside; that he saw Biden as somebody he could push to um, dream bigger, bigger to think bigger, to act bigger. And Biden uh, showed himself to Sanders as somebody who would be receptive to that.
0: So your book, of course, deals with the machinations uh, that Biden had with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and it's extraordinary to think that. Joe Manchin was able to scuttle the child tax credit becoming permanent because <laughs> the idea that federal subsidies for fossil fuel companies is more important than lifting millions of Americans out of poverty is just hard to stomach. Um, and can I add,
4: it was one of the most um, spectacular achievements of government in our time is that we were, by the uh, end of the pandemic, able to cut child poverty in half, and um, when Mansion scuttled the child tax credit, he scuttled the primary measure that had been taken that had been responsible for that um, astonishing drop in child poverty. So,
0: what's your conclusion about these two saboteurs? If that's not too strong a description of Cinema and and Mansion, what motivates them apart from Cinema being uh, in the thrall of rich people?
4: I <laughs> mean, well, there there you go. You just answered that. I mean, I think what was interesting was the way in which they almost seemed to be strategically pushing back against the Biden administration in different directions, where it made it very hard for Biden to negotiate um simultaneously because if he could push cinema didn't want tax increases on her friends in Wall Street. And so every time Biden started to make progress with her on that, um, Manchin would um reject the spending that was happening and so so cinema was willing to spend but not tax mansion was willing to tax but not spend which meant that they were they were stuck but i think that uh, what you're intimating there is is fundamentally correct is that they're both um tethered they're they're in the pocket as we say of of the industry and um and also to some extent i think it needs to be acknowledged that they were expressing Attitudes that were a bit more widespread in the Democratic Party as a whole, but weren't being articulated because they were um, there was too much political cost to objecting to the Biden agenda. So um, they had other stealth allies. It should be said.
0: So, do you think that there was any other way that Biden could have handled it? Did anybody inside the White House, Ron Klein or somebody, sort of rub these two prima donnas the wrong way?
4: Um, you know, I think along the way, sure, you could point back to various moments where maybe Biden could have done something differently, but in the end, um, I, I didn't want to say that they're, they, they were very firm, both Manchin and Sinema were very firm in their objections. I think that, uh, you know, maybe if Afghanistan hadn't happened, there was a chance that the president's prestige and popularity would have been such that he he might have had um uh greater leeway to bully mansion into joining forces but when his approval rating started to slip and the sense that the honeymoon was over then um then it became much harder for biden
0: well these guys and girl haven't gone away. I mean, this no labels is probably the greatest threat that Biden faces for re-election, isn't he? Because if if you think back to, to the last election, Biden only won the Electoral College by something like 44,000 votes in those key swing states, even though he got 8 million more in the popular vote. So if you assume, which many analysts have, that a lot of those people were disaffected Republicans. If Manchin and Cinema and Mark Penn and Company with no labels give uh, disaffected Republicans a place to go and vote for, uh, you know, a Manchin Sununu ticket or something like that, won't that be a real blow to Biden? Potentially
4: it could be a huge blow to Biden. So it's interesting to me that cinema um made the decision to caucus uh as an independent and Manchin hasn't gone there yet which maybe gives me a little bit of hope that he um isn't isn't willing to engage in this um anti this this act that could destroy democracy of running a third party candidate i'm also very worried about the cornell west candidacy um peeling away voters from the left because there are lots of examples um along the lines of uh, when the green party took votes away from Al Gore in 2000, et cetera, et cetera. You'd have to say that America right now feels like it's especially vulnerable to a third party candidate um, emerging that could um, play some sort of um, unpredictable role in tipping the election. And I, uh, you know, I, I am very worried about that.
0: Well, do you have to add to the defections on the left because of, Biden's unequivocal stance in support of Israel, with this war that's likely to get bloodier and and more uh, painful in terms of um, Palestinian casualties. So that's an, also a problem that Biden has, doesn't he? Particularly with the young vote.
4: Uh, it could be. It could be. It could be. I mean, right. uh, it would it would seem um, it would seem very tragic if uh, young people decided. That they were going to stay home, and then um, somehow uh, that that ended up costing democracy right. um, as a result.
0: So, one of the things that uh, was not mentioned in Maga Mike Johnson's acceptance speech before the House as the new speaker, first thing he said, we're going to get money to Israel, but they did, there was no mention of getting money to Ukraine and. Biden has taken a very, very strong and proactive role uh, with Ukraine. I'm not sure about the relationship that he has with the two highly educated people. I don't know whether Biden is, has a bit of a, I don't know, an, an inferiority complex about his academic stances. Because uh, I get the feeling that uh, both uh, Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor seem to be more cautious uh, than he is give give me your reading on that because you really looked into it
4: so um I'm, you're you're pointing to uh, class and um status anxiety are very much part of Joe Biden and who he is um that uh, as you say, he always talks about having gone to a state university, and I think that he's somebody um in part because of the way that he talks um. And he's he's kind of been an outsider uh, within parts of the Democratic Party. Barack Obama and his inner circle certainly rolled their eyes at Biden and Biden knew that they were rolling their eyes at him. And that uh, was something that further stoked his ambitions and his desires to show his smarts to people, which um, could occasionally lead him to be um, contrarian on issues of foreign policy because um. He has a very low estimation of the foreign policy establishment, who he also believes um, is rolling its eyes at him. Uh, with Ukraine, um, I would say that he he's his position is uh, one that comes from somebody who's who lived through the Cold War and who had to hide under his desk um, during bomb drills. Where he's very uh, set on supporting Ukraine and robust, but he's also um, among the most cautious people in his administration as it comes when it comes to giving aid packages uh, to Ukraine, because he worries about the risks of um, escalation. Um, whenever there's a meeting about an arms package, that's the question that he returns to again and again. You know, how will the r- Russians respond to this? Will it make nuclear war um, more thinkable? And um As someone who's a Ukraine hawk myself, I find myself somewhat frustrated by this, but also grateful that the President of the United States is at least um, posing those questions.
0: Well, of course, you, you can make the argument that the U.S. has promised a good game, but never delivered, because they keep setting red lines, you can't have this missile, you can't have tanks, you can't have aircraft, and then months, even a year later, they finally change their mind. And meanwhile, it's given the Russians an opportunity to build up formidable defences. So, uh,
4: um, on the other hand, it's hard to um, it's hard not to look at the grand tally of weapon systems that the United States has given Ukraine and the value of it, um, and to not recognize that um, we've been uh, this is a proxy war where we've devoted enormous resources to the Ukrainian cause.
0: Right. And initially, according to your book, uh, Franklin, the first meeting with Zelensky in the Oval Office on September the 1st of 2021 did not go well. That that Zelensky irritated Biden. He insisted on joining NATO right away. And then he began to lecture Biden about how NATO was about to become irrelevant in any case. And uh, that really, (laughs) Biden thought that was an absurd analysis and a blatant contradiction. And it really pissed him off.
4: Yeah, there's, a, there's inherent tension in the relationship with Zelensky. Zelensky was somebody who um, was new to Ukrainian politics. Biden had been involved in Ukrainian politics uh, since uh, for, for much longer time than Zelensky. Zelensky is somebody who relies on um, speaking over the heads of politicians directly to Western publics. Uh, Biden is this kind of inside the room dealmaker type. And so they've been pushing in different directions, even if they've um, evolved into a more mature working relationship over time.
0: Well, there's so much more in the book. Uh, We could talk a lot longer, but we've run out of time. And I thank you for joining us, uh, Franklin Foyer. I really
4: appreciate it, Ian. Thank you.
0: And again, I mean speak with Franklin Foyer, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of World Without Mind, Why Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple Threaten Our Future, and How Soccer Explains the World. And his latest book is a New York Times bestseller, The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and furor, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now.
1: The guy that next door in